And in this interview, he says, quote, science is 99% failure, and that's an optimistic view. In fact, he says uh, at the end of the year, he reviews his lab's results, and if there's too much success, I'm not a happy person. It means we're not asking the right questions. That's the kind of attitude that you need to see throughout scientific leadership is that if you're not failing at least some of the time, then you're not asking ambitious questions. You're doing the equivalent of maybe like a high school chemistry experiment where it's already been done a million times and we all know the answer. If, if you're doing ambitious science or interesting science, like it, it, there should be some failure and we should be able to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Today, I'm speaking with Stuart Buck. Stuart formerly was vice president of Arnold Ventures, where he focused on scientific reproducibility and funded important work to demonstrate its lack across various scientific domains. He now runs the Good Science Project, which engages in communications and public advocacy toward improving the funding and practice of science, largely through encouraging greater experimentation and extensive data collection. Among other things, we discuss Stewart's theory of social change, the double-edged role of models and metaphors in science, as well as potential causes of grantmakers' increasing conservatism. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation. So, Stuart, thanks so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. To start us off, is there a thread in your career, and how might that thread be articulated? How does the Good Science Project fit into those efforts? Sure. Well, uh, it's been a long road in getting here. So, I mean, if you went back and looked at my entire history, I mean, I started out as a classical guitarist and then uh, went to law school, like many liberal arts graduates do, and then was unsatisfied with practicing law and so got a PhD um, and then ended up uh, turning into philanthropy uh, around in 2012 or so. And so I worked uh, for the Arnold Foundation, uh, which is now known as Arnold Ventures. And so that's kind of where the thread uh, began of like really trying to promote good research and uh, good evidence. So the Arnold Foundation in its early days and, and to this day, is very interested in promoting evidence-based policy across a number of areas, including criminal justice reform and education. And so when I came aboard in 2012, uh, we started to notice uh, the looming issue of reproducibility, first in psychology and then in medicine, and uh, pretty much any area you look at, there are folks who will say that you know, there are lots of problems with the publication process, uh, that people care more about uh, getting something published than getting it right, which is what uh, one psychologist, Brian Nosek, uh, is fond of saying. And so it became for the Arnolds this uh, question of like, how do we promote evidence-based policy if uh, we, we're not sure what the evidence is or we're not sure when we can trust the evidence or how the evidence has been produced? Uh, so yeah, I embarked on a kind of grant-making program that over the years uh, gave out grants probably 60 million or more um, to promote open science and to promote reproducibility. And then that carried forward uh, to what I launched almost two years ago now uh, called the Good Science Project, which is a small think tank focused on trying to improve federal science funding uh, and science policy, again, to promote everything from reproducibility to uh, faster innovation, you know, more effective uh, programs and, and just a better, a better uh, overall R&D ecosystem. Yeah. So implicit in that form of work, um, there seems to be a theory of social change. Um, could you concretely speak to that theory? How do you think social change actually happens? And how has that maybe evolved from the early days of Arnold to what you're doing now? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. How does social change happen? I mean, I think it, 
you know, you could, you could think of social change as in, involving both top-down and bottom-up processes. So I, I do think both are really necessary and that, that kind of a bottoms-up grassroots approach is often foundational. Uh, so there are any number of examples you could give where someone manages to get some sort of top-down policy enacted, um, but there isn't a lot of like grassroots support for it. And so then people end up evading it or circumventing it. Uh, so for example, I'll just you know, give a concrete example. There's a federal law in 2007 that said that any clinical trial uh, in the U.S. that's being used to um, uh, get FDA approval for a drug or, or you know, treatment um, and this, or this funded by NIH, uh, these clinical trials should be registered in advance on a website called clinicaltrials.gov, and then they should go back and report the results after the trial is done. And so, um, so that's that's a great policy in theory. But there have been any number of uh, times when people go back and check, you know, are these clinical trials actually reporting results? And oftentimes they'll find uh, that you know a lot of clinical trials just don't report the results. Um, you know, for, that can happen for any number of reasons, kind of bureaucratic inertia, or maybe a clinical trial failed and no one is following up on it, um, or no one's no one's enforcing this policy. Uh, but you know, getting a top-down policy enacted is sometimes, yeah, just a, just the start of like trying to actually see social change happen. Um, and if the the people in a given field aren't, you know, compliant or you know just basically refuse to go along, it's it's kind of hard to really force behavior like that. Um, so I do think that some type of like grassroots bottoms up approach is also necessary. And I think we've seen that, for example, in psychology, there, you, you know, you could imagine a policy, uh, you know, for example, with the National Science Foundation, NSF, that funds some psychology research, you, you could imagine policies there to try to promote reproducibility. Um, but I do think that one thing that's been successful in psychology is the formation of grassroots organizations like the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science, known as SIPS. Um, that's a grassroots organization with a lot of early career, career researchers uh, who come together and you know, talk about how to improve their day-to-day -day work. And you know, so there's this feeling that we're all in this together and that you know, this uh, uh, promotion of better work at early career stage, that, that will eventually bubble up into you know, as, as these researchers become more senior and more established, you know, that, that will help create change within psychology. So, so yeah, I think it's kind of a mix of uh, uh, top-down, bottoms-up bottoms up approaches. And, and it is tempting to, you know, try to start at the top and think, okay, I've got a great idea. If I could just force everyone to adopt this, then that would be great. But like, we live in a world where it's not always possible to just, you know, enforce your own wishes on other people. You have to, you know, get buy-in and support. So, so yeah, I do think that. yeah. yeah. It requires a mix of approaches. Yeah. For that, I I guess a follow-up would be, are there particular areas um, or problems where there's a top-down component and also a bottom-up component and where they kind of meet? Like, have you, have you seen any projects where um, both of these components kind of like had to work together and like what might be like the, the intersection point of that? How have people dealt with I that? I mean, you know, if you take the a kind of, multi-decade view of history like so there's been an issue uh, about sharing scientific data um you know sharing data that supports publications or even just sharing data that's produced by a lab even if it's not part of a publication and that that's an idea that's been out there i mean really like the the kind of history of science is basically the idea that like whether you believe something uh should should not just come should not just happen because some authority says so but because you produce data and evidence 
and experiments and all the rest. And other people can uh, double check your work. They can see it for themselves. They can replicate it, hopefully. Um, so that's kind of inherent in the the very idea of having science as opposed to other forms of uh, authority or knowledge about the world. Um, but, you know, at, in implementation, it's often fallen short. And so, uh, you know, the the ways in which people share data or don't share data have evolved over time. And uh, I think technology has uh, made data sharing much easier over time. So, um, you know, with the advent of the Internet uh, and that became much more you know, commonly available in the 90s. So then you start, started to see certain scientific fields. Uh, genetics was a leader, for example, uh, that started to say, look, we should just share our data openly or as openly as we can with each other. And so I would say genetics was an early leader. And then other fields, you know, through fits and starts have you know, started trying to share more data. The NIH cons uh, currently sponsors several dozen data repositories, um, some of which are kind of generalized, some of which are specialized. And there are other other places that try to share data uh, or provide platforms for sharing data as well. And so uh, I think that's been met with uh, efforts to uh, require sharing of data. So so the internet and you know data repositories, that makes it possible. It becomes more normative through, you know, fields evolving, you know, practices and uh, kind of preferences for like, you know, this is how we should share data. And then it's kind of met at, at a final stage with the uh, policy implementation uh, so the NIH spent several years working on a data sharing mandate uh, that just finally went into effect in January of this year. And, you know, so now we have a what hopefully is, is kind of aggressive top down policy. Um, and again, it remains to be seen how well that will be implemented, because one aspect of this new data sharing rule is that scientists have to share data, even if it doesn't appear in a publication. Now, how exactly the NIH is going to enforce that, how exactly people are going to comply with that is yeah. kind of an open question. Mm. Yeah. What's the perhaps most impactful, relatively feasible, low-hanging fruit type of incentive change that, in your view, could improve the efficacy of scientific research? You could pick anything, but like what's what's out there right now that maybe good science can't really, you know, work on given, you know, its limitations or its focus, but what are you like wishing for another person to tackle or another organization? Uh, inter interesting. Well, so, I mean, a couple aspects to your question. What, like, I think you said, what's the most, one of the most practical things or the, or did you say intensive social change? Impactful, like, relatively impactful. feasible. Yeah. Like what's the low hanging yeah. fruit yeah. where a small change could yield potentially a great outcome. If there is any such thing that's come to view for you in the past few months, years. Uh, that's, that's a great question. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm almost tempted to say that, you know, that low hanging fruit uh, is maybe difficult in this area because, you know, if, if there were low hanging fruit, then I would expect it uh, might, uh, you know, to have been picked before now. But um, I do think that like there are areas where we could improve just the uh, overall production of meta science, so to speak. So the, the process for which scientists who are kind of external to, let's say, the NIH or the NSF, are able to study those processes and to see how they work and to see what uh, you know best impacts science. So, so on that meta point, I, I do think one one area where we could do a lot better and that wouldn't be that hard compared to a lot of other ideas. I would be just for organizations like NIH and NSF to do a better job of sharing their internal data with uh, external researchers, and they do they do this sometimes once in a while, but it's not common enough. And I know some 
frankly, some top researchers in the field who typically don't want to be named out of fear of antagonizing NIH, but um, who have been frustrated that they can't get access to data on things like peer review scores. You know, they like to study questions like, well, how, do, how does peer review handle certain types of proposals? And you would just need to get access to the you know, anonymized scores. And that's something that I think we could do a much better job of making that uh, more available to outside researchers, economists, sociologists, uh, you know, public policy scholars, folks that want to just, you know, do some meta-scientific examination of how NIH makes decisions and possibly recommendations of how those decisions could be changed or improved or at least experimented with. You know, we could do more internal experimentation with government agencies. That's that's another another possibility that, um, you know, I, th I think is out there and, and NSF is talking about doing things like that. So, yeah, more experimentation at government agencies and more access to those agencies' internal data, I, th I think, are a couple of ways in which, you know, we've seen, seen a little bit of progress and I think we could do a, a lot more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if institutional risk aversion is getting worse, um, which I suppose I'd be curious to hear your comment on in the first place, uh, whether whether you share that sentiment, but it's often like, um, I feel like a, a stock phrase like in the or stock take in the meta science circles. Um, if that's actually getting worse, what would you recommend a young researcher intending to pursue an ambitious long term project? Where where should they go? Whom should they talk to? Um, I'm sure this differs from field to field or problem to problem even. But um, is there some as generalizable as it uh, is even possible to to give an answer to that? Um, is there is there anything right. that you would recommend them? And yeah, I suppose mm -hmm. as a follow up, whether that answer has changed at all uh, from since you started working in meta science. They kept their well, many efforts. That, that it does seem to have changed in terms of options or. Uh, that are available to a young researcher who maybe needs funding. Um, I think there's been a lot more philanthropic interest in promoting uh, new and different ways of doing science in recent years. And so um, you, you've seen organizations like Schmidt Futures uh, sponsoring uh, focused research organizations, which are these kind of startup organizations that are centered around one particular scientific goal. And they have a kind of short-term mission-driven approach um, so there's a number of these that have that have been set up. Um, there are there are new uh, organizations like the ARC Institute, uh, sponsored by the Collisons and uh, you know, a number of other philanthropists. Uh, there's Arcadia Science. Uh, you know, uh, there's, there's this kind of upswelling of philanthropic interest in promoting new and different ways of doing science, and it's not totally discontinuous with the past. I mean, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, for example, uh, has you know had a history of sponsoring. Uh, top researchers uh, to to have more creativity and uh, flexibility in their work by just giving them kind of open-ended grants. Um, but yeah, I think there are a growing number of, of private opportunities. And then within government, I mean, I, th I think it's been interesting to see such a push to have like a DARPA for everything or an ARPA, I should say, without the defense component. Um, so there, there was uh, ARPA-H, uh, the idea of an ARPA for health. There's been RPE for energy, uh, RPI infrastructure. Um, another RPE is an idea that for education. Um, so I think the, these sorts of ARPA-like initiatives, uh, or at least have the ambition of, of saying we, we want to pursue aggressive, high-risk projects, and we expect there to be some failure. So don't come with your you know, safe incremental ideas. Um, so yeah, the, the young ambitious researchers might you know, find more opportunities 
uh, with, with those types of initiatives as well. But I do think that we need some kind of similarly minded effort with regard to basic science. So the, the, the ARPA mindset or mission is that you have some like, like specific targetable goal that might be very aggressive, whether it's, um, you know, creating new forms of cryptography or self-driving cars to name some things that DARPA itself has worked on. Um, or, yeah, I mean, there's some specific goal. You, you put out this aggressive goal, you get, you get different researchers or in the ARPA lingo performers, uh, you know, and you, you hold them to a bunch of aggressive milestones and you really try to push for progress on the specific goal. Um, but I do think that within the area of basic research, like it, it can't be that goal-driven um, or a kind of mission driven. I mean, part of the, uh, the whole process of basic research is that it's curiosity driven and that it's uh, unpredictable where it's gonna lead. Like you, there may be researchers studying some obscure bacteria uh, and bacterial defense mechanisms in the early nineties, or they're studying it in yogurt in the early 2000s, and then it turns into CRISPR, which is something no one you know, had, had expected, right? And so I think that being able to fund we need space uh, within our funding system to to uh, let aggressive, ambitious researchers do something that maybe seems irrelevant to everyone else at the time. And so that's, you know, I think in a broad scientific ecosystem, we we need some ARPAs that are like really mission driven and milestone driven, and we need some space for researchers to, to just explore the universe and um, follow their curiosity and follow their nose where it leads. Um, to, so we need some some balance there. Yeah. And perhaps this is, I don't know, I'm expecting too much of a narrative rather than acknowledging that oftentimes there's, there's just seeping change informing these things. But when and why might have grant makers um, become more conservative in funding these kinds of um, basic, if we want to draw that distinction, I know you, you have your gripes with like the basic and applied science um, distinction in the first place, but um, when have they become more conservative in, in funding that, uh, that basic science and do you see that kind of tied? This is something I've just been curious about for myself for, for a while. Um, has it been kind of tied to broader cultural shifts of wanting kind of incremental, safe, quantifiable, like measurable um, impact rather than uh, kind of like giving someone like a pretty long leash and letting them work in obscurity potentially for a few years? Like, do you feel like there's there's just historical currents or cultural currents in the past that, that have kind of caused this. Hmm. That's interesting. So, um, I mean, I do think it's been a problem for a long time. I mean, there was a, some major peer or reports on peer review out of NIH in the 1970s, where they talked to a lot of scientists and scientists had some complaints that they still have today, which is that the peer review process seems to focus on safe, conservative um, science that seems guaranteed to work. Um, maybe there's something kind of inherent to large bureaucracies that uh, kind of veers towards what's safe. I mean, it's kind of the scientific parallel of like, you can't get fired for hiring IBM or McKinsey. Um, you know, like you, we want some big established entity that seems safe uh, to do whatever project we have in mind, whether it's for business or for science, um, where we can kind of guarantee that there, that it will have good results. Or if it doesn't, well, it's not our fault. Like it was IBM or it was, it, it, we funded Harvard, like who, who, who could complain that you know we we funded the safe thing? Um, so yeah, I think that that impulse might be there in large bureaucracies, and so I think that people who are at the top of those bureaucracies have to bend over backwards uh, to 
uh, protect people that work for them and like funding outside the box ideas. And so it's kind of a constant struggle, like the, I don't know, like the, the struggle against the erosion or the struggle against like, uh, you know, your driveway getting dirty. I mean, it's like a constant struggle to try to like maintain uh, a good system and not let it fall into just the patterns of like safe incremental, uh, the beer, the typical bureaucratic thing to do over time. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's, that's one element of it. I, I do think that politics plays into it too, especially when you're, when you're talking about like federal funders, uh, there have been politicians over the years who, you know, sometimes will target various funding agencies for ridicule by holding up some research project that they think is frivolous, um, which in some cases it may be frivolous, uh, but um, then, the, then they'll hold that up for kind of ridicule in a congressional context, for example. And so that's also, I think, a component of why sometimes people at funding agencies are a little bit nervous about being too outside the box. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a political decision too. So politicians, like in the case of DARPA, I think why DARPA has been successful is that politicians, you know, for whatever reason, gave it enough of a, uh, free reign that, uh, it, that, they, that DARPA felt empowered to, to take on huge risks. And then DARPA has ultimately had some successes that they're then able to, to point to, uh, as kind of protection against all the other times that they might've quote unquote failed. Uh, so. So yeah, I do think that that's, that's possibly one hopeful element of the, the push for ARPAs in other areas is that maybe politicians could get more accustomed to the idea that, you know, just because some, someone funds something that seems, you know, ridiculous or, or high risk, it doesn't mean that that's a, a bad decision as part of an overall portfolio. And so you shouldn't hold, hold that one decision up as uh, something to be ridiculed. Yeah. One of my favorite phrases that I came that I came upon in preparation for this um, was a post of yours that questioned the validity of our common distinction between basic and applied research. Um, you're right, metaphors and models matter after all. They can open our minds and policies to better ways of doing science, or they can be an obstacle to good science. So from your vantage point, um, are there other contingent metaphors and models that stuck in science funding and organizing? Perhaps even like any essays, books, proposals, a la one of our best um, endless frontiers memo that policymakers found and then built downstream models upon that now feel like um, very ingrained just in the in the process of how science functions. Hmm. Yeah. So I think I think you're drawing from an uh, yeah an essay I wrote about a year ago or more on like the distinction between basic and applied science, and uh, yeah, I think that was. Um, kind of drawn from this insight that, you know, basic and applied uh, are not necessarily like totally disentangled in, in practice, that there are, there are all kinds of examples from scientific history where a basic science project might lead to an applied insight and that, that applied insight might also circle back and provide uh, further opportunities for, uh, for basic research and so forth. Um, and so it's really kind of a integrated cycle of discovery um, over time. And so, uh, so yeah, maybe, maybe that, that are, that article was, you know, a little more philosophical nature, I guess, but it's arguing that, you know, we, we don't necessarily need to divide everything up into basic versus applied. I mean, there's literally an NIH webpage that I saw once that, um, tried to classify every NIH grant as either basic or applied basically. And it's, yeah, I think it said 51% are basic, 49% applied. And that seems like a little too binary for me that, you know, and in fact, the reality of probably a lot of those grants is that they, 
have some component of both. You know, maybe they're doing basic research at the moment, but it might lead to an applied discovery that, you know, then turns into a biotech firm and so forth. Um, so yeah, I think that's, it's useful to, to, you know, break down these kind of categories that where we're trying to, you know, put everything into some kind of like predetermined box and say, well, your science is X versus somebody else's science is Y. Um, yeah, I think it's the world isn't quite as clean cut as that. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything else that you feel like is, is harming the way that grant makers or researchers, it, it could really be anywhere uh, within kind of the institutions of science, kind of think about their work, um, where it's like metaphors that they're implicitly using that you've come across or um, kind of similar like clean cut distinctions that don't quite apply? Yeah. So I think like the notion of failure in science is uh, something we really need to think about or question, just like the very word failure or failed science. Um, so in fact, I'll, I'll just quote from, there was a recent profile of uh, the Nobel Prize winner, Catalan Carrico in Glamour Magazine of all places. Um, and it had this uh, great quote from her. And so if, I, if you don't mind, I'll just read a quote from the article that then quotes uh, Carrico. Um, so it says, Carrico knows her peers. Scientists build an experiment and expect a certain result. When the process doesn't net out as planned, it's a disappointment. It's a waste of time and resources. Or at least that's how other people think about it. Quote, it seems that the experiment doesn't work, she tells me. Incorrect. The experiment was, in fact, a success. It succeeded in showing the scientist how inaccurate her assumptions were. Um, so I really like that quote. And I, in fact, posted it on Twitter and said, look, we need more of this attitude in science. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, to, to just expand on that, I mean, I think this whole notion of failed experiments is, it's kind of a misleading category. I mean, there, look, there are reasons that an experiment can fail. Maybe you just like didn't set it up properly and you know, the thing, it got ruined, right? I don't think, but that's not the type of failure we're talking about. We're talking about failure where you're studying a particular idea. You hope that a particular hypothesis pans out where you, or you want, you're interested in that. And then it turns out that. Uh, you know, that hypothesis did not work or, um, you know, maybe you're testing a treatment for a disease and you know, the treatment didn't work. And that's maybe disappointing. I mean, it'd be better to, to be able to treat the disease than not. But it also is scientific progress to learn, okay, we, this is a treatment that does not in fact work. And so that maybe means that either my model of how the, how the disease can be treated needs to be updated or my model of how, the, how this drug works needs to be updated. But as, as Carrico says, you, should, you know, from that quote unquote failure, you should still be able to learn something and the field should be able to learn something. And so, um, yeah, I think we need to really think about what, what do we even mean when we say failure in science? And we need to be more, much more tolerant of the kinds of quote unquote failure uh, where the results just didn't turn out as expected. But th that's that's still progress. And it's it's it harms a field if. Uh, we aren't allowed to see as many of those uh, negative or null results and, and thereby update our information on those. So, um, so yeah, that's de definitely like the metaphor of failure is one that I would want, you know, a lot of, a lot more scientists to, to question, to think about like Erica does. Yeah. And then as a follow-up to that, do you feel like there's institutional roles in also updating kind of their conception of failure. Cause obviously if you're a scientist and you're even, even like very pro failure in terms of, you know, learning something from the fact that you failed, um, you can be as optimistic as you want, but ultimately if you're not, you know, like publishing or getting tenure, like hitting like very measurable metrics, 
um, it might be hard for you to to advance uh, just in your career as a scientist, right? Um, do you feel like there's um, there's a role for institutions to to kind of like update their view of failure or allow scientists to kind of like claim like a more optimistic notion toward failure? And what might these um, institutional changes look like, like in an in a world in which, you know, the NIH had a positive view of failure, would abandon the idea of failure, kind of were updated in, in the way that you just described. Um, how might uh, things look differently? Like what structures might change? Right. I mean, again, if we if we talk about failure in the sense of just null results, um, I, I think that uh, agencies like NIH should uh, positively, or should it should actually expect a certain rate of, of failure in that sense. Um, and then in fact, it's a sign of, of, it should be a sign of suspicion if, if some researcher or uh, some grant making program has too many uh, successes, as in like everything we study, it all works, like it always proves our hypothesis, like that's just not that, like the only way we can get to that point is either by um, studying topics where you already know the answer, and it's already like, you know, very safe and incremental, um, or just by, you know, shoving all your null results under the carpet and not telling anyone about them. And just, in essence, almost, I would argue being dishonest, like, um, in fact, like, there have been a, a number of scientific frauds that have been discovered in, in a number of fields. And it's interesting how like the, the response from their colleagues, after the fact, after the fraud is uncovered, is often something like, wow, I always thought that guy was like, just amazing, because he always came up with such positive, exciting results. I'm like, how did he do that? Well, uh, yeah, he was committing fraud, he's falsifying the data. Um, but that so that should be a sign of suspicion, you know, maybe the one initial sign of fraud is like someone is just too consistently churning out exciting results all the time. Um, and it's, of course, it's possible that, that they might be doing that legitimately. But it, I would argue that like, potential frauds like that, that's what they're pattern of publication looks like. Um, so, so yeah, when it comes to failure, I, I think we need to, uh, you know, expect some rate of uh, null results. I mean, what that rate should be is is a good question. Um, so there's another interview that I'm fond of with uh, Robert Lefkowitz, who won the Nobel Prize in uh, 2012. And in this interview, he says, quote, science is 99% failure, and that's an optimistic view. In fact, he says uh, at the end of the year, he reviews his lab's results. And if there's too much success, I'm not a happy person. It means we're not asking the right questions. Um, so I think that's that's the kind of attitude that you need to see throughout scientific leadership is that, you know, if if if, if you're not failing at least some of the time, then you're not asking ambitious questions um, or you're, you're doing the equivalent of maybe like a high school chemistry experiment where it's already been done a million times and we all know the answer. Like, mm -hmm. If, if you're doing ambitious science or interesting science, like it, it, there should be some failure and we should be able to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another piece of yours describes the need for a funding agency to look at their anti-portfolio of sorts. Um, that is the proposals that were rejected, but turned out to yield important results down the line. Um, I'll quote the questions that you pose. Um, can we explain at a level beyond random noise why opportunities were missed? Were there any key predictors available at the time that could have been recognized by funders? Or was it just the lack of the draw? Either finding would be useful. So I'm curious, I know you didn't publish this too long ago, but have there been attempts to do this since or even before that kind of motivated you to write this? Can you can you speak to any patterns that we've found of what makes an agency kind of reject? Uh, not, 
I don't really know of any efforts so far to do this. Um, I would love to see it go forward. Um, I, now, the idea of an anti-portfolio, I'll admit I got that from Michael Nielsen. And in fact, I just recently saw a Michael Nielsen uh, post on Twitter where he, he pointed out that um, some, actually he pointed out to this uh, article in Glamour, which is where I found that. Um, but he pointed out that um, someone at the University of Pennsylvania, it mentions in this article, is, is going to give a lecture on like, why did I miss the fact that Carrico was a great scientist and why did Pennsylvania like essentially try to push her out the door? Uh, but Nielsen also points out that it's it's interesting that Pennsylvania, the University of Pennsylvania as a whole, it hasn't been asking that question as far as he can tell, uh, nor has uh, NIH, at least not in any uh, you know, official capacity or official report. Um, and, you know, it, it should be a time of, of soul searching for uh, organizations like NIH or Pennsylvania. You know, here's somebody who is doing work that would one day win the Nobel Prize and yet you know, you wouldn't fund it and you tried, tried to get her fired. Like, how is that not an occasion to, to go back and, and take a look at why were we making decisions that way? Now, now what I say in the piece is that, look, it's, it's quite possible that this is, you know, just an anecdote. Like, there are many other anecdotes that are kind of similar. Um, and it's possible that, like, any decision-making system, you're going to have, like, false positives, false negatives, type one, type two errors. Uh, so, you know, fo folks at universities and NIH might indeed logically make the claim that, look, any decisions that we make, uh, you know, we make tens of thousands of decisions a year. Like you're, you're always going to be able to go back and say, look, you should have made one decision differently. And, and that's a fair point. And that's why I suggested we should, we need more than just the, you know, anecdotes, even if there are dozens of anecdotes, we need some more systematic look at, you know, the decision-making process that led up to these anecdotes, you know, were they indeed uh, systematically uh, preferring certain types of research and were there things they could have noticed about the future Nobel winning work at the time, given what they knew? Um, yeah. So without the benefit of hindsight, it's easy to identify Nobel winning work when you like already know that they won the Nobel prize, but it's a little harder to identify it 15 years in advance, perhaps. So, so yeah, I'm arguing that we should go back and try to look at what did people know at the time? And, you know, were they, in fact, systematically biased? It would be good to have the kind of empirical, systematic evidence on that point. So. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, um, still hoping somebody does that. Yeah. No, I'd be, I'd be very curious to hear like, the results of that, if, if anyone's ever, like, doing a longer um, kind of write-up or, or study of it. Um, what's the implicit yeah, knowledge? Well, that's, that's one of the questions, by the way, that would require, in, in, in NIH's case, someone to have a lot of access to detailed data on their internal procedures and on peer review scores and on the proposals that went unfunded and so forth. So going back to my earlier point, like, um, you know, you, you really need a, a lot more independent access to that kind of data. Uh, so that's not just, I mean, I, I worry a little bit about agencies evaluating themselves because there's always going to be uh, kind of a conflict of interest in that case. So, I mean, whether it's NIH, NSF, Department of Energy, you know, you name it. If 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 you're if the idea is, well, we as an agency, we're going to go back and uh, evaluate ourselves and how well we did. I kind of worry that they, for political reasons, might be reluctant to publicize or even like come to you know some sort of finding that uh, you know we indeed failed in our own internal procedures. So, so yeah, I do think you need some kind of independent scrutiny for those types of questions. Yeah. Do you like? Are you aware of? where one would even go um, to kind of collect this? Like what, what kind of shape is this like repository of, you know, like failed 
um, or rejected proposals and such like taking on? Like, is there just like one, you know, like corner of the NIH, one, one, you know, like branch of it, uh, where, you know, a meta science um, motivated person would go and, and kind of like knock on the door and demand, demand some data? Um, yeah, so like, um... Let me see. It's, I think it's called Impact Two. I think the NIH has some internal database that researchers will occasionally get access to, and uh, but yeah, not not nearly enough to. I mean, so I've I've heard it referred to as like getting getting behind the firewall. So they have, I guess, some firewall externally, and um, that once you get behind the firewall, then that means you're you're on the inside and you have access. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I actually don't know how far back the the data goes. I'd have to look into that. But um, yeah, it would be whatever they have. It'd be great to have more uh, more ready and available access to external researchers. Mm -hmm. And within meta science, what's the implicit knowledge um, that you feel holds true generally, but is not explicitly stated? Uh, what has to be learned in you through experience by everyone kind of entering the area? Uh, with no good reason could be written down perhaps. And I know you're doing a ton of that work um, or shared more publicly in general. Do you feel like there's still anything that you wish you would have yes. known or that seems like obvious to know and not so obvious why, why it wouldn't be shared more publicly? Hmm. Within meta science, what's implicit? <laughs> I might, I'm, yeah, I might have to think about that some more. I'm not, I'm not off the top of my head. I'm not sure. Uh, so maybe, maybe that's not the best answer <laughs> but oh that's right um we can also come back to that or um yeah you can link something if you if you end up um having anything um if there is one um and this is also uh not necessarily going to yield an answer but if there's a disagreement between you and the the people that you work with um what might that be like a main disagreement the contentious topic that you always return to when you're working on between on the disagreement project. between me and you the people that you work with, the people I work with, as in at the good science. Or, sorry. Yeah, yeah, work for you, or even the investors that you work with, like anything in the in the capacity of the good science project. Hmm. Um. You know, it's interesting. Like a one disagreement that I had. Uh, what? So there was there was someone who works in at the NIH. I won't name who it was because we were just having a private conversation at this uh, uh, conference of the National Academies. Uh, but yeah, we ended up having a disagreement about the value of replication, or about the value of funding replications. And I, you know, have a history at Arnold of funding some replication experiments. So like the um, so psychology project that tried to replicate 100 experiments. Uh, that, that was published in 2015 and found only around 35, 40% that could be truly successfully replicated. Um, then a similar project in uh, cancer biology, uh, where the Center for Open Science also tried to, well, they tried to replicate 50 cancer biology papers. And uh, for reasons relating to the quality of the literature, they could only get to, I think, around 23. Because um, uh, just the literature is like impossible to even try to replicate unless you like contact the original lab and they tell you what they really did. Uh, so it became a much more difficult process than anyone imagined. Um, so yeah, I mean, having had that experience, I, I think that funding some replication experiments is uh, valuable for for a lot of reasons. But yeah, I got some pushback from uh, this person at NIH that you know this person said 
something along the lines of, you know, what do we really learn from replications? I mean, a lot of studies don't work out for any number of reasons. And, um, you know, studies are hard and, uh, you know, it, it's better just to, for us to fund uh, basically work that tries to extend and build upon prior work uh, and not, not spend time on direct replications. And I just fundamentally disagree with that. I think that there, obviously most of what NIH does is going to be extending or creating new work, but to say that we should fund zero replications to me, that just, uh, I just can't really agree with that. I think that we, that we do learn a lot from the effort to replicate studies. I mean, the cancer biology, uh, case, we learned that uh, the quality of the literature is just inadequate. Like you literally cannot read a paper, at least the, any of the papers that they read and, or in the message sections or whatever, and you, you can't even try to replicate it. And if you can't even try to replicate it, I, my question is, how would you build on that? How would you extend that work in a new direction if you can't, if you don't even know enough about the original experiment in the first place? Um, so, so it seems to me that kind of falls apart, like the idea that we should just extend previous experiments rather than replicate. And the effort to replicate showed that you, you don't even know what happened in that original experiment. It's, you, all you know is the polished version that was uh, whatever made it into the actual paper. Um, and then I do think from, from failed replications, uh, there, there's been this argument that, well, when, when replications fail, you, you're still in a state of uh, uncertainty. Like it, it could just be that the the replicators weren't as good or they weren't as skilled or, you know, as the NIH person said, experiments are really hard. And so, you know, they, you're going to fail a lot of the time. So what do you really learn from a failed replication? Um, and I mean, there's something to that. I mean, it's possible the replicators uh, in any given case aren't very good, but I do think that like one of the most common excuses made, whether it's in cancer biology or psychology or whatever, when one of the most common excuses for a failed replication is, well, you changed something like you did it in a, a slightly different time or context. Um, you know, you did the psychology experiment uh, in, a, in a particular setting that was somehow different from the original one. And, um, and, and there was this like, uh, you know, hidden factor that explains why the experiment might turn out one way in one setting and one way in a different setting. And my response to that is like, maybe that's true, but it seems to me that's something we ought to know about. Like, again, anyone who wants to build on a prior experiment and who is blindsided by the fact that it only works in one setting and not the other, like that, that's something they ought, ought to have known about. Um, and, and also, by the way, if, if the, the precise setting and circumstances and context and time are also crucially important to that, that experiment being quote unquote successful in the first place, then maybe, yeah, scientists ought to be more circumspect when they talk about their original study in the, in the, in the case of psychology, you know, like, Maybe if, if all you've done is study a hundred undergrads at, at, in Florida, maybe you shouldn't then like write a best-selling book or give a Ted talk on how we now have this theory of human nature, uh, you know, especially if it's going to turn out that when someone replicates your study in Virginia, it comes out to a different result and your excuse is, well, of course it was a Virginia town and not the Florida college town. Like that's, that seems maybe you don't have a, a truly generalizable theory of human nature at that point. You, you're, you're just like quibbling about details. So it seems to me that you, you do learn a lot from replication or the attempt to directly replicate. And yeah, I find it uh, honestly just kind of mystifying that, that people think, no, that, let's do zero of them. Like, listen, let's not bother with it at all, at all. Even when we're spending $50 billion on uh, a research program, like we shouldn't have anything go towards trying to directly replicate and see whether uh, stuff is true or whether it's, 
you know, variable from different set different settings to another. So yeah. Yeah. That's fine. One disagreement I've had. Yeah. I, I know we're running out of time, but I just wanted to ask lastly, um, are there any important topics that we didn't get to something pressing that you'd like to kind of like extend as a tangent? Um, any kind of important questions that I haven't asked of you today? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, there, there are some, there are some big questions and I, I don't claim to have the answers, but I mean that, uh, about how, what we should even be measuring about science in the first place. I think mm -hmm. there's a big kind of measurement problem. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, meta science studies that focus on citations, citation patterns, um, citation patterns over a scientist's lifetime, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or the focus on patents, um, as a kind of indicator of whether innovation is happening in a field or not. And I think that those metrics are useful to some extent, but they're also uh, flawed in many ways and they don't necessarily correlate with, um, you know, perfectly with what we might actually want out of science. Um, it, I think that what a lot of times what we want out of science is kind of unpredictable and maybe unmeasurable in the short term or, or, or else we need some thought about how we could better predict, you know, longer term success. So I refer to, you know, basic science as being something that often, you know, turn, you know, one discovery that seems irrelevant that, you know, will f cause a field to change. And then, you know, there will be a flourishing of new discoveries and building on it. And then decades later, it will turn out that, uh, indeed that original discovery was, was, uh, really, really useful. Um, so I think we need better ways of thinking about how do we even measure and predict that kind of thing in advance, if it's possible at all. And how do we, uh, how do we best do meta science? Again, to harken back to something Mike, Michael Nielsen has said, how do we best do meta-science if our goal is to produce you know, uh, a slightly higher rate of outliers, like scientific geniuses who, um, you know, whose creativity is allowed to flourish? And, you know, how do we produce, you know, at, let's just say an Einstein every five years rather than every 10 years or something like that? You know, how do we, how do we increase the rate of outliers? And that's kind of hard to measure. It's hard to measure in the short term. And if, if all you do is focus on you know, overall metrics like uh, average citations and patents and that kind of thing, it, it could be almost counterproductive sometimes because uh, again, it, you, you get a large bureaucracy that's, that's focused on short-term metrics. You know, they can end up kind of flattening out what the possibilities of what everyone is allowed to do. And so it might inadvertently squelch uh, the, the outliers who want to do something different or that, that isn't as easily measurable in the short term. So, yeah, I do think that there's some kind of deep, not fully explored questions of like, how do we even measure uh, scientific output so that we uh, maximize what we want to maximize and not do something that's inadvertently counterproductive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking today, Stuart. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it as well.